0: My mother, when she came to see me, I was still in county jail. She told me never to give up and don't conform to my surroundings. Don't forget who you are. Hold on to your character, hold on to your integrity. Where you're at does not
1: define who you are. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please, sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of The Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Alice Marie Johnson. Alice is a great-grandmother, she's an author, she's a criminal justice advocate. Alice spent nearly 22 years in prison before being granted clemency by President Donald Trump with the help of Kim Kardashian in 2018. She used her time in prison to her advantage as she became a hospice volunteer, a mentor to women, an ordained minister, and an advocate for change. She comes on the podcast today to share her incredible story of redemption, hope, and perseverance. So help me in welcoming Alice Marie Johnson to the Adversity Advantage Podcast. Alice, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Doug. I'm, I'm happy to be here today. I'm happy you're here too. I am incredibly inspired by your journey, everything that you've overcome, how you've taken so many different negatives and turned them into uh, positives in your life is something that's very admirable, and I can't wait to to dive into your story, talk about how you were granted clemency after serving 21 years behind bars for a life sentence for your first offense for a nonviolent drug crime. But before we get into the comeback story, I think it's important for people to understand how much different things were when you grew up and to kind of paint a picture, if you will, of what your childhood was like, what your family dynamic was like how you were living, so that people can really gain an understanding of the vast difference in culture between back then and now?
0: Well, I'm living back in my hometown right now of Olive Branch, Mississippi, where I grew up. My, both my parents were very strong believers. They were Christians. There were nine siblings. I'm almost in the middle, almost dead in the middle. Eight girls and one boy. And my family, we were, I guess you could say, we were very much the very typical Black family. Faith was very important to us. Family was very, very important to us. And I grew up in a very loving family. My siblings, we were all very competitive in that we all wanted to outdo each other in making good grades. So my maiden name was Bogan. And so everyone knew us as being the smart kids in school, because my parents believe very strongly in education. And being, being born in the 50s, I was born in 1955 in Jim Crow, Mississippi. But we were a very proud family, proud of our heritage, very community oriented. We used to say that everyone in the neighborhood raised each other's children. If I did something wrong, you can best believe that one of my neighbors, I'd get, I'd get reprimanded by my by the neighbor, and then I'd get in trouble with my parents, who were very a, a very close knit, loving community. But at fifteen years old, my life took a, a big dive. I became a teenage mother, and I, I became a teen teenage pregnancy and married at fifteen, also. But because education was so important in our family, I refused to drop, to not complete my education, even though efforts were made to stop me being a pregnant student, I I had to miss a year. But I studied hard my friends' books. I took a test and I was still able to to catch up with my correct grade. Mm -hmm. And I graduated with good grades, even though I'd missed a whole year out and had two children in high school, and I still graduated on time but I knew that it was very important. Education was very important. My parents worked hard to send my siblings to college and being young and married, we know that many times teenage marriage is just don't work out, but I, having a strong foundation of faith, I was not one who was anxious to be divorced, even though I had a very bad marriage. Me and my husband, we had five children together. And through the course of time, I was always a very hard worker. I continued to take college classes. In fact, I integrated my hometown's offices. I was the first uh, black person to work in an office in my hometown. Mm -hmm. I could type really good, and I'd always excel wherever, wherever I worked. My parents believed in excellence. So I knew I had to be at work earlier, I'd have to work harder, and I'd always advance. And through the course of my career, I became a manager. I worked for FedEx for 10 years. I had a very good career with them. I became a manager first in computer ops and then in customer support. And then I began training others for management.
1: That's amazing. And it's, it's quite inspiring, like what you were able to build, given that you came from very humble beginnings. I want to go back to the beginning a little bit, because I know okay. you mentioned that you did get pregnant at 14. Then you were you were married to your then husband at 15, had your first child. But before that, like you mentioned, you grew up in Jim Crow, Mississippi during the, the sharecropping days. And I believe yes. your family was working for Mr. Abernathy. Your dad was getting paid something like $3 a day to pick cotton. So yes. what what was that experience like? Because I think there's a lot of people now that that weren't alive during that time and just really have They just don't really have a grip on what it was like for someone who was a person of color to grow up back then.
0: I was very segregated. The things that you've seen in movies is very true. Everything was segregated from water fountains to not being able to get good medical care. I talk about in my book that I wrote Afterlife, My Journey from Incarceration to Freedom, my memoir about my not being able to even go to a dentist. Because the dentist in my town, he would water down the pain reliever, what they use for pain. I think it's novocaine. I think it's what it's called. But he would add water to it for the black, for his black patients. And because he was trying to pull a wisdom tooth in the back, I was very young. I think I was only about nine years old. Hey, something ended up happening, and he told me to raise my hand and I did something to get us attention and He told my mother never to bring me back, but he used the n word never to bring me back so it was very important to me to keep my teeth brushed and clean because I was not allowed to go to the dentist. I had been banned from the one dentist in town, but we literally and as I went where I was born at in Mississippi. You said that my, you talked about my parents being sharecroppers. That was a very, very, that institution was so unfair. It was so unfair because we do the work and they get all of the money. And to keep us in that type of bondage, we'd always have a running total through the winter. And after every harvest came in, no matter how big the harvest was, he'd always say there was no money left over when we knew that there was, but what could you say back then? And Mrs. I mean, in doing that time of segregation, you could lose your life literally over rising up and call, you know, and saying that the owner was lying. Mm. And so, you know, my, we couldn't speak out, but my mother fought back. She was an excellent cook. She started, she found a way to escape that. By selling plates at places, Mr. Abernathy would never come. And uh, she made. they made enough money to buy a home where I live now in Olive Branch, but not in that same home. But they were able to buy a home and we escaped that type of sharecropping. You know, it's really servitude that was taking place. And everything was I, I went to school in a very segregated school and they desegregated even after desegregated desegregation it took a while for them to really integrate the schools
1: Hmm.
0: so my parents that's why they were so much pushing us with education because they felt that education was a way to escape that life
1: wow gosh so different back then and I can't imagine what that must have been like for you and your family and it stands to reason I guess why y'all decided to flee that house I think it was like in 1961 or sometime in the early 1960s where 60 it was like 19
0: uh going into 1960 uh yeah. when we were able to get away and literally it was like a scene from roots we really? had to escape there in the middle of the night we couldn't allow them to know that we had gotten a house about 10 miles away and my my parents would go after my dad and would have a hard day milking and working the farm. And we all picked cotton. They put a, a sack on my shoulder to pick cotton. Right after, it seems like right after I could walk good, everyone had to work. And we had to literally leave there in the middle of the night as though we were escaping. And this is going into 1960. We literally had to escape from there and not let them know they were pushing the car. My cousins came, we had to push the car, and they started up further down the road. And we got away. That was the only way that we could get away because my parents were afraid to let him know that we were leaving. And so the next day, I guess they saw our little abandoned place that we were living in, little cinder block house that uh, where I was born.
1: So you mentioned that you. Your parents were afraid to let him know that you were leaving. Like what could have happened if he found out that you were leaving? Was there laws in place that would have kept you working for him or how did that work?
0: It's not that there were laws in place that would keep us to work for him, but the system was set up so that we didn't know what he might do. He might say that we were stealing something and trying to get away. My father could have gotten in trouble because we we had seen, my parents had experienced a lot a lot of beatings, even death down there. And you you just, it was a place that you stayed in that you just didn't cross that line. And it was never explained to me why it had to be like that. But, you know, I, I really feel they feared even for their life, if anyone knew that they, if he found out that they were leaving, that he would have come up with some other excuse as to why they couldn't leave. Because he didn't know they had the money to leave. He thought that finances, keeping them in poverty like that, was a thing, was an invisible change that kept us bound to him.
1: And it seems to me that a lot of your experience in your childhood and the foundation that your family helped instill with you in in God, in believing in Jesus and in trying to see the best in circumstances really served you well. During your prison sentence, but I think something else that served you well during that time that ironically led to you getting this job at FedEx was your ability to write. So talk about what got you started into writing and then how that really helped catapult your career into getting that job at FedEx.
0: Yes, I always loved to write. And I really didn't know about having a gift to write. When I was 10 years old. My in my school, we were asked to write in one of my classes a poem. And I loved the Lord, e- even as a young child. They'd always find me in somewhere in solitude, looking up into the heavens and just talking to God. And so my first poem was called, Who Is He? And it was a poem about God asking who he is and knowing how I felt about him and asking if he could see and if he knew could he see my, my teacher, when I recited it before my class, I can still remember that day. I was 10, I stood before my class and I didn't have to read it. I was just pouring my heart into those words. The room was silent for a moment. When I, opened, when I looked at everyone, everyone just started wildly uh, applauding. My teacher took me to other another teacher and said, you must hear this, what Alice has written. Mm-hmm. And that led to me being entered in contests. I was only ten, but they had me compete with the junior high, and I won first place. And after that, they all were telling me, "You have a gift. This is a gift you have." And so that gift of writing was served, led to me after I got got a job at the Urban League. After my husband and we had such a rocky marriage, mm-hmm. but one of my coworkers was in a tragic accident. And it just so happened that his mentor was the vice president of FedEx. He was over all the personnel globally and nationally. And so they read him the poem and he asked for me to come into their board meeting. He was on the board of directors for the Memphis Urban League because I was living in Memphis by that time. And he asked me, he said, did you write this he said, Do you mind if I share it with Greg's mother? Because Greg was an only child. And Jim loved Greg. And he shared, and then he asked me, would you like to work for FedEx, for Federal Express, is what it was called back then, before they shortened the name. And I said, yes. And I had really these great typing abilities. I could type a good 90 words a minute with no errors. And he sent me to personnel. And that began my career with FedEx and the secretarial pool. But within six months, I was out of that pool with a good job and with in a year or two, I was in management because I worked hard. My parents always believed in doing more than what is asked of you and always having a spirit of excellence about yourself and everything
1: that you do. If you ask those that know me best what has been an ongoing struggle of mine, it's definitely been my sleep. I'm sure many of you can relate to this. One small change I recently made is that I started taking Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers, which is the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium. I've taken lots of magnesium supplements throughout the last decade, and this one is rare and that it actually makes me feel relaxed when I take it. Listen, if you're having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, one of the best things you can possibly do is start getting enough magnesium. But please do not run to the store to buy the first magnesium supplement that you find. Most magnesium supplements use only the two cheapest synthetic forms. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed, and you'll be amazed by how much better you sleep and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash Doug and use the code Doug10 save 10% when you try Magnesium Breakthrough. So go to www.magbreakthrough.com forward slash Doug now to get your exclusive 10% discount. Now back to the show. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result, fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bopes. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bopes. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. That's the key, I think, right? I mean, there's so many situations that are super unfortunate and challenging and very hard. But I think... Being of staying in that mindset of being a victim and pessimism just kind of keeps you in that same place. And not that it's not justified in some context, because some of these situations clearly are very unfortunate. But I think the only way out is to have this sense of optimism and do whatever it takes to continue to put one foot in front of the other and get out of that situation, which is what you and your family did. And it's quite Moving that you were able to take that situation, you go on to have your first child at fifteen, you're married. you end up having five kids before it's all said and done. But then, you know, you get this job at FedEx, and things started to unravel in your marriage, which essentially led to the de- started to lead to the decline of your personal life, and then you end up meeting another guy and, and falling. Into a gambling addiction. So, talk about that. Like, what what transpired in in your marriage, like towards the end, that became so traumatic that you finally separated. And then, what happened when you got involved with this new guy, Ted? As you know, not
0: getting married. This was the first man. My husband was. I'd never dated before. I'd really, you could say, I'd never really experienced life. My marriage had been, had fallen apart years before. And but we still stay together, we break up, we make up, and then here's another child. When the marriage finally ended, even though it was an awful marriage, I found myself free. I'm gonna say free, but just free to, to do experience life, things that I'd never experienced before. And the casinos, when I met the man that I speak about in my book, Ted, when I met him, he was a gambler. And I see the, the bright lights and the thrill of gambling and seeing the dogs, because I started with the dog races, that was some of the most excitement that I ever had in my life. And I didn't really know about a gambling addiction. But before I knew it, that's exactly what I had. Uh, I was spending money that I didn't have and couldn't replace it back. And I ended up losing my job because I didn't have the money to turn my expense report in from travel. And it was a stupid thing and I was really on my way. And I really, the reason I didn't have the money because I loaned the money to Ted. And I had 30 days to complete my expense report. He kept swearing, promising me up until the very day. And I think that fear of, of not being a failure of that panic, not knowing what I'm going to do. Because when me and my husband divorced, he disappeared out of our lives. He never gave me a dime of child support. I'm overwhelmed. I've lost my job. I don't know what to do. I'm in this crazy state of mind. And at that very moment, all I can say, Doug, it was an offer from hell because really in that state of panic, my house is about to be foreclosed on. I just filed bankruptcy and I don't even know how I'm even going to keep lights on in my house. I don't have any insurance. And in the midst of all of this craziness, my youngest son was killed in a tragic accident right after i made this bad decision on a scooter with his brother. He got hit. I didn't even have money to for funeral, nothing. And an offer came to me to be what is called a telephone mule. All I have to do is pass a number to, when someone come into town, I pass that number and say, this is a number that you call. This was in the mid nineties, correct? Yes, it's in the nineties. It's beginning, really. It's beginning, yeah, it's the very beginning part of the nineties. So I've lost my job, my good job of 10 years with FedEx, and I'm trying to take care of my children and I don't make any excuses, Doug, for making a bad decision because many people find themselves in bad situations, but they don't allow themselves to go into the panic I went into. They make different choices. I don't even, I can't even tell you why anyone would make me that offer other than they knew something about Ted, mm. because, of course, I didn't know it was asked, do you know anyone that can can do this? And I just really made a terrible decision. The first time I made the call, I got a thousand dollars. They kept put food on my table and kept my lights on. And when my son was killed and I had nothing, it's like I'm in this crazy state. I'm spiraling out. The only thing I can say is I was in a mental state that was like no other. But when everything fell apart, and one of the guys who was involved in this was stopped, my phone number. Is in his pocket. I didn't even really know this guy. They were just giving my phone number. And, and, you know, as bad as it sounds, they gave me a little peace of mind thinking, well, I'm not really selling drugs. I'm just doing this part of it. But any role that I played was still part of a drug conspiracy. It was wrong. And they offered me first no time, and then three to five years if I would just take a plea. But well, the first offer of no time came with some uh, terrible strings attached. But then three to five years and my attorney said that they had you have no money. You have they haven't caught you with any drugs. You have no drugs. You have no money. They have nothing on you. But I didn't know. I didn't know, Doug, about conspiracy. I didn't know that there was something called conspiracy that you don't have to have the physical evidence, testimony. Anything that you do, you're charged with the whole thing and testimony is taken as fact because by the time that six week trial was over, I was convicted by an 11 person jury of not possession, but attempted possession. I didn't even know that there was such a thing that you could, I never even knew that a life sentence was on the table For mm-hmm. so an attempted possession. I go from an offer of three to five years to when I'm sentenced. I'm given a life plus 25 year sentence without the possibility of parole. Here I am, have never been in trouble. No brushes with the law, nothing. Have worked hard all of my life. And now I'm being taken away from my children and my children are being told that they would never see me again as a free
1: woman. Wow, there's so much there that I wanna go into. And I definitely wanna get, talk about like what happened after you got this horrific sentence. But I guess just to, you know, unpack a little bit of that, it seems that you had this rocky marriage with your then husband, Charles, and then you meet this guy, Ted, and he essentially becomes like this knight in shining armor in a way because your marriage was was so rocky for so long. And then you get yourself involved in these bad habits and i think once you start to get involved in some bad habits they lead to other bad habits and bad choices and you make you know certain judgments where you wouldn't have made it before based on you know some of the choices that you had begun to make that were different from the person that you knew yourself to be but then i think it became more or less about survival like when you got let go from fedex you have five kids to support and then then unfortunately you lose your youngest in the, in the bicycle accident, right? Shortly, like right around that same time that everything went down with FedEx. And it's almost like you just have to do what you need to do to feed your family, feed your kids. And it was also like a challenging time, I think culturally probably to get a job and rework your way back up to where you were given what had just happened at FedEx. So I wanted to kind of shed some light on that. But from what I understand, There was a bill that was put in place back, I think it was in the 80s, maybe it was in the 90s, that gave harsher sentences for people that were arrested with crack cocaine. So, can you talk about, from your perspective, looking back now, like what was that bill? Like, why did you get such a harsh sentence? And then maybe, like, what would you have done differently if you had the power to enact a bill back then? to combat this, this war on drugs that they were trying to fight.
0: Yeah, it was, it was the crime bill and it was enacted in 1994 and it just so happened two years later, I will get caught up in this system where a crime bill has been put in place. We've got these harsh mandatory minimum sentences and everything is rubber stamped. The ability of judges is even taken out of their hands. Whatever the amount that they say that is involved, that's what you're sentenced on. And there is no, unless you take a plea. It, that's, and I found out later that the people who were testifying against me, they all, every last one of them had long criminal records. So they knew how this Thing. They knew about this game of being the first one to take a plea. They knew about conspiracy, but I didn't because I'd never had a brush with the law before. I know nothing about any drugs period. And so the mandatory minimum, there was another thing that was allowed too back then. And since while I was in prison, some things changed under Booker versus Booker versus Washington, I believe it was, where you had to have an amount, you had to have, you couldn't be have these numbers. You could a prosecutor couldn't just crunch numbers and say, even though you're found guilty of this amount, I estimated that it's this amount. And that's what happened to me. They were able to, I was found guilty of a much lesser amount, but the prosecutor came back and said, use this one little word, and that word is estimated amount. Based upon testimony, this is the amount that we're charging you with, and that triggered this life plus 25-year sentence. And automatically, if you go to trial, you get what's called the trial penalty. I was enhanced for going to trial because if you're found guilty, they, you get another penalty for testifying because you testified and you lied because they said they found you guilty. Got so it. that's another enhancement. And then I received a leadership enhancement because... They say I'm their boss, but if I was their boss, I was the worst boss in history because I was making the least amount of money. When I was arrested, they did my pre-sentence report. I had $500 to my name in the bank, a house that was not even $100,000, no car. My car was repossessed, but the others who testified against me had money seized, houses, boats, everything. So how is the boss? The very poorest person is' not because I gambled it up because you I never made that kind of money. The ones who got the lion's share who agreed to testify against me and to save themselves, they were rewarded. One of the persons in my trial was already serving a thirty year sentence, and he was facing I took his life sentence from him. He was reduced to I believe three years and deported.
1: Hmm.
0: So the whole system is set up. Absolutely wrong. There should not be that type of punishment to exercising your right to go to trial.
1: Wow, that's crazy. I didn't know that. And, gosh, I mean, thank goodness they've done a little bit of reform to amend some of those harsh policies that were put in place, and I know we have a long way to go, which is what I want to get into later on in our conversation. But back to the sentence, so kind of offered these deals where you're going to get just a few years, you know, in your original couple offers and then, the, the jury comes out and they end up sentencing you t- to life. The jury had nothing to do with the sentencing phase.
0: Mm. I don't believe that jury had any idea because they were really hung for like almost a week and they kept sending notes back and forth trying to determine what conspiracy meant. Got it. So the jury didn't even know that a life
1: sentence was on the table either. Yeah, and you had never had, you weren't arrested with, with drugs, right? It was just- no. this- No, it was
0: telephone records. I was sentenced to life plus 25 years for telephone records, no physical drugs, no money. I didn't think that that was possible, but that was ignorance of the law does not still mean that the law don't exist. As soon as I went to prison, I made myself Mm -hmm. aware because I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know. And plus my attorney advised me to go to trial. He knew But he gave me really bad advice. You know, looking back on this, the thing, one of the things that's got to be struck down is this whole conspiracy uh, laws that they have in place for federal prisoners. That's, you can't do that in state. Had I had a state case, I would never have gone to prison because there was no evidence.
1: Gosh, it's crazy how how some of these loopholes and some of these laws and some of these different things that were put in place can have such a harsh effect on the individual that's, that's going through it. And I love how you acknowledge like your choices and that you shouldn't have been doing what you were doing, but that doesn't mean that the sentence you were given was justified by any means. So let's get into that experience. So you're, at, you're sentenced to, to life in prison. Your family's told they're never going to see you again as a free woman, but yet you ended up bettering yourself so much during the 21 years that you were in there between becoming a speaker, speaking to, to kids at Yale, I believe, right? You were, became a pastor, you volunteered in hospice there, you became a mentor to all these women. You, you maintained this innate gift of optimism, hope, and faith during that time. I think I heard you say that you never wanted your freedom to be an idol. Like God was always first. So I yeah. guess my question to you is, so after you get sentenced, I'm sure you feel so defeated, so depressed. I'm sure there's a lot of anger that's going on there. That's that's a natural response based on what you went through. Like, how did you go from, from that to like, where did you develop the motivation to better yourself and maintain hope during the, those in the, during those initial stages of your incarceration?
0: I can... I 100% credit that to my faith in God. Mm-hmm. When I went in, my mother, when she came to see me, I was still in county jail. She told me never, really not to give up and don't conform to my surroundings. Don't forget who you are. Don't become, don't, don't, get, don't just go alone to get alone, basically. Don't conform right. to your environment. Be who you are. Hold on to your character. Hold on to your integrity. Where you're at does not define who you are. I'm just paraphrasing the speech my mother gave me. So when I when I went and I was sentenced, I went back to my cell and I prayed and I asked God to use me. I offered myself and my service because to me, life is a gift. And wherever, whether I was free or I was incarcerated, I still had the gift of life and I still could do something with my life. So I, I made the decision that wherever I go, wherever this leads me, Lord, that I am going to do the best that I can to live life full, to live life serving, to become a service to others, and that really helped me get through my time because Doug, it's something about when you serve other people, you, your problems don't seem so big. I've had so many women say to me, I had no idea, Miss Alice, you have life sentence. You don't act like someone who has a life sentence. I got busy with the business of living and not looking forward to dying, not just counting the days. And And honestly, I think I was truly blessed if, not to have a 30-year sentence, a 20-year sentence, where I'm counting the days until my release. My hand, my time, my everything was in the hands of God. Only he knew what day and what hour I would be set free. And I never lost my faith that one day I would be set free, even though I had some really hard days. The hardest times were losing family members. I lost the sister then I lost my father, and then I lost my mother. And not to be able to grieve with other family members, to be alone. You know, the women there had become my family, but it still wasn't my family who understood, who we had shared pain. That was some of the hardest times when, and to get bad news from home to, I still had to be a mother. I learned how to mother on the inside because my children still depended upon me. My, me and my children were so close and we're still extremely close. So I had to still
1: Nothing could take away that I was still their mama. Gosh, it's, it's really inspiring your, the level of faith you kept during these hard times. Because like you said, you were sentenced to life in prison. So for, as far as you knew, right, on paper, your life was over except for being behind bars. And there's a there's a lot of people that even now that are going through some really hard times. There's a lot of people that have gone through hard times or that will. And their their faith in anything is 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 very tested, is tested a lot during those times. And they they tend to to say things like, oh, God's not real, or you know, why is this happening to me? Or I can't believe I'm going through this. I'm gonna go on and on with examples. But it seems that your unique ability to go the opposite route and still maintain your faith in God and just know that something was going to come was eventually what helped you like get out because certain dominoes started to fall. So talk about some of those dominoes as far as some of the policies that changed during your incarceration that led you to eventually mm-hmm. get granted clemency by President Trump, but there was a lot of things that had to happen in between then. So talk about that if you can.
0: One of the things that that happened I didn't know that this would play a role 20 years later. My very first year of incarceration, I was sent 1,500 miles away from my children. And because I had these technical skills, I got a job in vocational technical. VT is what we call the training women to prepare for life outside of prison, even though I didn't have a lot of an outdate. And one thing that I noticed is that people with long sentences could not take computer classes. Because it was like, for what? They couldn't take those classes to learn computers and learn how to type. So I challenged that. I fought it, and I won, and I changed the system where women with long sentences, and men, they had to have at least a certain percentage of them in these type of classes, reentry classes. So that I needed to have those skills myself when the when we were allowed to have emails again to be able to email in prison, because when I went to prison, there was no internet, there was nothing that was out there. And so those skills would really serve me well. I started speaking, Doug, you have no idea the impact that was made in prison. I don't say this to boast, but when I look back on it, look back over those years, and I look at the impact that I was able to personally make in prison culture by bringing theater into prison, by bringing so many different things in that people, I hear this word a lot of times, reimagine. Mm-hmm. I did, I was able to reimagine what this could look like, what this could look like for the women I was serving time with. If I showed them, if I use my ability to write, to help them realize something that they didn't know they could do, like acting or singing or dancing, and then we could put on really wonderful production, top class productions. And I was no so nonsense about rehearsals. They had to become disciplined to show up at rehearsal to learn lines. They loved it. Many women had never in their life heard applause before, and it impacted culture. It impacted everywhere. Everywhere that. I was in prison because I try, I went to three different prisons before my release. But each place that I was at, it brought light into that dark place. And people, were, women were excited about being able to do things. The staff, the staff, I had so much respect from staff because I respect the staff. And they respected the good that I was trying to do in prison. So I, I had an opportunity to do so many things I was very trusted, I'd earned that trust. And when an opportunity came for the first radiothon and they wanted someone from prison to speak at the first national radiothon on clemency and criminal justice, I was selected. I was the only prisoners whose voice got out for that radiothon. And that was during the uh, Obama administration. And so my voice got out first. But let me back up a little bit. Before then, there was a campaign to end mass incarceration for people who did not have a violent crime, but was serving a life sentence. So once again, you can call it the favor of God. Some people call it luck. I call it favor. I was selected as one of the six prisoners in the country to be in this ad campaign for the ACLU. So I'm in newspapers, magazines. My picture is one of the six people they selected. That was 2013. In 2016, my voice gets out. And then I'm asked to speak at a college. We have get video, the video dissertation stuff is like Skype. I get permission to speak at Hunter's College, then Yale University, then the University of Washington in Seattle and the last university I spoke at was New York University, but I also spoke at Google and YouTube criminal justice platform. I'm the, I didn't even realize it at the time, but I am—I was the only prisoner that had ever done that. And that led to Jake Horowitz, who heard me speak at a, a YouTube a criminal justice conference. He saw my picture, he saw me live on the big screen And I'm speaking to other influencers and other, what do you call them, NGOs and just other people in that space. And I've been denied three times by this time for clemency. And there's a new president in office, President Trump. Um, The Clemency Project 2014 has ended. And it looks like I've been left behind. And he asked me to do a video op-ed, and I agreed to do it. Now, this is not the first time that I have spoken out to an audience outside of prison through that vehicle, but this was the time, this was the time, Doug, this was the time that would be it, and I didn't know it. I just felt that I had to do it, and it went viral. Doug, I didn't even know any tech, tech terms. When they told me the video was trending, I didn't know what trending meant. I had to ask. Then when they told me that it had gone viral, I was terrified. I thought I'd introduced a virus into the internet because virus and viral all sounded the same to me. But it went viral. Kim Kardashian saw it. Someone sent it to her after it had been after the first day. She saw it and she tweeted out, "This is so unfair."
1: If we can, I do want to go back a little bit because there was a couple things that I think are important in what you said that. I think people would appreciate just knowing more about because, like you said, that Kim Kardashian saw that the tweet of this video, and then, but it it didn't just start there. Like you had to maintain your faith, you had to be optimistic, you had to continue to put in the work. You fought for injustice. you went to the law library and educated yourself on like criminal justice laws and what could yeah. be done for reform. You started to speak, you started to mentor all these women, so all these dominoes started to fall into place, and then, by the grace of God, President Obama pushes for this clemency project to help end the incarcer or the life the mass incarceration of of life sentences for people who are in there for a nonviolent crime and And also what you I mean, you also kind of brushed over the fact that you got denied clemency multiple times. Yes. After you knew in your gut, you're like, this is it. I'm getting out. Everybody in the prison thought you were getting out.
0: I just knew I was getting out because the criteria for the Clemency Project 2014, it wasn't just for people serving life sentences. It was for the criteria was having didn't have a significant criminal history. I had none. Having had good conduct, I had perfect conduct. All of the criteria, I met it. There were about six things, but I exceeded all of the criteria. So I just knew everyone in the prison just knew that I was going to get a staff. The other women, they were all confident that if anyone was going to get clemency, it was going to be Alice Johnson. Right. But that was not the way that it had to be. I'm not even angry about that. You know, I wondered, and the thing about clemency is when I was denied, I was not given an explanation as to what I did wrong, what I could do to improve myself. And that is a big broken piece of this whole clemency process, because to me, you should have the right to know why you're denied. So if there's something, when you go to a parole board, you know why you're denied. But clemency is shrouded in mystery you have no idea why you why why you don't get it so i didn't have any idea i had to keep trying and i had to keep trying and the last time was just really broke me almost when i was denied for the very last time but i still i still had this in me that it's got to be something else and so i still That when I got that last denial, it was January. It came on January the 6th or 7th. It was actually signed on the 6th. I found out about it on the 7th, 2017. That was in a few days, a little bit after that, the president would be leaving office. So it seemed like hope was gone. But then the U.S. attorney who had uh, been involved in his recommendation saying no to me, Because that's another part of the clemency process. The last part of it is when you are close to receiving clemency, they send it back to the U.S. attorney and ask them if they think you should get clemency. Well, this is a new U.S. attorney, so he asked my old prosecutor if he felt that I should get clemency. And he even confessed to my family later that every time my paperwork came, he just said, deny it, that he didn't feel like I should get it, not knowing anything about who I was, who I am 21 years later. He's still angry about me going to trial. Even though my warden has right has written a letter on my behalf of clemency, my captain, this other staff, even the other women. So why should a prosecutor who you were in a who I was in an adversarial relationship with? Why should that rest upon him giving a thumbs up when well, he he knows nothing about me 20 plus years later. But that was all part of the plan, Doug. I'm conf- I'm sure of that. Mm-hmm. Had I gotten clemency under Obama, I would have just been one of 1,715 individuals who got commutations. But the way that I came out, gave, put the spotlight on this broken system. The person who advocated for my clemency, Kim Kardashian, And the people that she got involved, there were many others, and I thank all of the people who advocated for my clemency, and I didn't get it. But it took just that type of attention of of the world watching my case because someone has gotten involved. But the very important thing that I don't want anyone to miss is that even though she was an advocate for me, I also had to be a good candidate for clemency. Right. She couldn't go in there and advocate for someone who had had 21 troubled years in prison or someone with a shady past or hadn't changed. This is a country of redemption. And if there was anyone that was a clear case of that deserved a second chance, and not because it's me, because there's many others like me who deserve that chance too, it was my case. And she literally, the attorneys that she brought in they were able to help put together a very convincing case, especially when the layers are pulled back. and you see why I received this sentence and what I'd actually done. A person can say anything because most many people say I didn't do anything. I did do something, but it certainly did not deserve a
1: life sentence for sure. absolutely. I totally agree. And you know, I think, There's 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 obviously most people, if not all people who are listening to this have never received a life sentence for prison. So they can't necessarily relate to that. But what they can relate to is that they feel that no matter how much right they do and they get back up on their feet, they continue to get knocked down. They do the right thing. They get knocked back down. They get they do the right thing. They get knocked back down, which seemed which is what it seemed like what happened to you during your prison sentence and you kept getting denied clemency after clemency, after clemency and you kept doing the right thing after right thing, after the right thing. So how did you, especially after that last time where you said you felt so defeated, how did you maintain hope, encouragement and inspiration for yourself? Like after that moment and and not give up.
0: Well, I'm going to speak my faith. I'm going to, I'll tell you the truth. I went to my room after I saw President Obama waving goodbye. I was crying. Tears were running down my face because I'd truly been left behind. I went to my room, and this is the truth, Doug, and I prayed. And when I was praying, this came straight into my head. I can't say that who spoke God's, i say it was dropped into my very spirit that Jesus is the resurrection. And before there can be a resurrection, something has got to die. And... My hopes died that day, but when I got up off my knees and people asked me, "Miss Alice, how are you doing? And my one response was, Jesus is the resurrection. And I didn't explain anything, but I determined, in fact, I determined that I'm going to do even more. I am not going to let this defeat me. Mm -hmm. I, I did the first play that I'd ever done in Spanish. I did a play for the Spanish community because they felt I was, I don't speak Spanish like that. So I got interpreters and I directed and helped them write and choreograph their whole play. It gave them new life. It gave them new life there. I did Mother's Day play. I was doing everything. I threw myself back into work. I threw myself back into work and I prayed even harder. And it was so encouraging, too, because by the time that Kim Kardashian heard about my case, it was October. October was the month that I went to prison. Wow. That was I was convicted on Halloween, Doug. In fact, when while I'm still handcuffed, the agents were in my ears saying trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat. Mm -hmm. And I'm handcuffed, being led away. But October had become and my son was killed in October October had had become a month of almost terror, of hating to see October come. But even before then, I had started praying more in October. And I just believed that October was going, something was going to turn around. Mm. And it sure did. That was the month that I did the video op-ed. And instead of looking at it as, as no month is cursed, every month and every day is blessed. But October became a huge blessed month for me. And that's why even though as a free woman, I hear so much depression, COVID has hit, there is so much darkness. There is so much fear of the unknown. I was in one of the darkest places that anyone could ever be in with what I call an unexecuted sentence of death. And I was able to hold on to hope hold on to faith and believe that, as they say, the sun is going to shine again, that one day I'm going to be free. And even during these lockdowns of COVID, when we were separated from our families, from physical touch with them, that was nothing compared to over two decades of being separated. And so I was able to do it, even in this dark time, Doug, I I did things during the dark time of, of lockdown. I bought a house during COVID. I launched a foundation during COVID. I submitted over 100 clemency applications and helped 46 people get a second chance during COVID because it is when it's dark that we have to press through. That's what walking by faith is. If you can see it, if you don't have, if that's that's what it means really to hope, because if you can see the end, what are you hoping for? What are you hoping for if you can see it? There's no need to hope, but it is in dark times. I think that that's my thriving ground right. is in darkness, because I've learned how to look past darkness and hold on to my hope. And if you push toward, and it's not that I'm some type of just optimist. No, I am a woman of faith. And I saw with my parents firsthand that faith in action, and faith is not passive. Faith is action. It's active. It's alive. It's believing for something that you can't see, but you can feel that it's going to get better. And even if this had not happened, I would still be doing the work. I would still be doing the work and still trying to make wherever I am a better place.
1: Amen to that. And I love what you said about, I mean, everything really about how you thrive during times of darkness and taking action with faith and how that all comes together and everything that you've done over the last couple of years to help people who were going through the same thing that that you went through. And then also how you managed to pick yourself back up after President Obama walked away from office and you felt that things were, were over. So Let's fast forward a little bit. So you do this video. It goes viral. Kim Kardashian sees it. She ends up calling Ivanka, Ivanka Trump, who I think they had a relationship. And then Ivanka's husband, Jared Kushner, his dad was incarcerated. So he had a soft spot in his heart for for some prison reform and helping people in prison. And then it gets to, to President Trump. So what had to transpire between them talking to the president and actually the president like granting you clemency, like what had to transpire in order for that to happen?
0: Well, it took seven months for Kim to get that audience. It was not immediate. Mm -hmm. You know, people may have learned about that she was working on my case during the end. But one thing that Kim said to me, she said, Miss Alice, she said, Alice, no matter what happens, she said, I'm never going to stop fighting for you, for your freedom. And there was six, seven months of hard work us thinking that she was going to get an an audience of them getting everything involved in my case transparent, so that she could have a good case. It took four attorneys working hard to put together everything that she needed and that Sean Holly needed to go and turn that Oval Office into a courtroom, and she had thought that she was gonna, it was a lot of ups and downs even during that time because she thought that she had gotten an appointment to have an audience and that fell through. Mm -hmm. And then when she got the next audience, it was on my birthday. And it seemed like that was a sign. Mm -hmm. It being on my birthday that this might just be it. So even that was a setup, Doug, because for seven days, from May 30th my birthday until June 6th my release date people were googling me and they were trying to learn more about me even in 2018 at the end I was one of the most googled people in the world cuz everybody was trying to see who is Alice Marie Johnson and so on that day when I was released and I'm going to tell you real quick I know we're running out of time but I want to tell you just a little bit on the day that I was released it's been 7 days so It's all over the news that it just might happen that day. I had gotten so many disappointments, even though I had faith, this thing, I'm kind of trembling a little bit. They're saying, Miss Alice, you're all on the news. I look and I see them saying that it might happen. And I go to my room and close the door and look out of the window. And I just wanted to do something normal that day. It was a Wednesday It was hamburger day, we only get hamburgers once a week, so I went to have my hamburger and just do, I know that sounds crazy, but just do something normal. Mm. But when I got the news, it was crazy. It was pandemonium on that compound. That compound housed 1,600 women. There were about 1,300 at that time. And they had to be locked in their cells because little did I know that media had showed up at the prison and was everywhere. But they made them park on the other side of the road and they wouldn't let my family up on the property except one vehicle to pick me up. So when they announced Alice Marie Johnson, report to R&D with all of your property, a chorus went up. It sounded literally every, it was this big loud scream. Everybody was screaming in all of the buildings. And then when I walked out of the door, They were in the windows with cups, beating on the bars, beating everything and just screaming out, Miss Alice, don't forget about us, we love you. And when I grabbed my chest and made the motion of throwing my heart to them, literally, I'm not kidding, it felt like an earthquake. It felt like that ground was moving. They were stomping and beating and screaming and crying. And when I left them, I had to pass by a camp that housed about 250, women who were not behind a fence, that were at a prison camp. Every officer, all the the women who were incarcerated were lined up in front of the place, and it was the same scene. They were screaming and crying my name, don't forget about us. And when I ran across that road to my family, Doug, what people don't know is I have been running since. I made a promise to the women who I left behind and also to the men who who I hadn't seen that I would never stop fighting for them. I would never forget about them. And from the time I joined my family and the world watched me rejoin my family and hug and celebrate with my big family that had showed up to pick me up, all of those reporters, they disappeared. All I saw was my family.
1: Mm.
0: But the next day I hit the ground running. The first step act, they were trying to get that passed. I hit the ground running. A week later, two weeks later, I was in D.C. advocating for the First Step Act. I was speaking everywhere. They had billboards of me all over D.C. stand together in their organization. They put together a huge uh, bulletin boards. And I was in the airports. I was speaking. I ran so hard for these women and men. They say every time they see me, I was, I was all over the place, all over TV, speaking up on their behalf, doing everything I could to advocate changes in laws. The first four months that I was out, I was not resting. I got shingles dug. Just so stressed because I couldn't, I could not get the image out of my head of how they were crying and begging me not to forget about them. And really, I dedicated my time. That's what I have been doing these last three years is doing everything I can do to change laws, to help people gain their freedom. The organization that I founded, Taking Action for Good, TAG, that's the acronym for, it was formed so that I could do for them what was done for me. What we do is we, we humanize the people who are incarcerated. We tell their stories. We get it out because I found that it was my story really that changed the heart of America, that changed and brought bipartisan support more for the First Step Act because they saw the injustice of my case. They heard me speak. They saw my family. That is what it takes. When you read a story, it's not the same as when you hear someone speak, see their face and see the impact that it's had on their families. And that is what I've been doing, is getting those stories out there, humanizing them, giving their families voice. Because when one person goes to prison, Doug, their entire family, as you know, goes with them. They do every day of that time with them. My children were locked up with me because their mama was missing. My siblings didn't have their sister. My parents didn't have their daughter. My community, I'd been pulled out of my community. And just recently, I received an award from Ebony Magazine. They select, it's called Ebony Power 100. And they select 100 Black Americans, or Black, Black individuals, African Americans. They select 100. It's called the 100, it's brilliant, bold and Black. And I was selected as a community builder. You would think that my section would be criminal justice, because I'm a criminal justice reform advocate, but a community builder helps build back communities. And that's what I've been able to accomplish. I've been able to help people gain their freedom and restore them back to their communities. Because when you have a strong criminal justice system in place, a fair criminal justice system in place, that restores families, it makes communities safer. And that is what all of our desires should be. So as I would say, some people talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. I walk the talk.
1: Amen to that.
0: I'm about helping people and giving voice to those who have no voice.
1: Wow, that's incredible. And I'm so glad that you're doing what you're doing and that you you were able to, to make it out on the other side. And like you said, you eventually were granted clemency by President Trump. Yes, got out. And I know one of the things that you said that that you missed the most, obviously, was your family. And I know that you've kind of put them first and and really taken time to, to spend it with them and and really tried to repair a lot of the, the loss or tried to gain back a lot of the lost time that you missed while you were behind while you were while you were incarcerated. But I have two more things I want to talk to you about. Number one is you mentioned reform and, and doing some doing things differently to help rebuild communities and and get people out for unfair sentencing. You mentioned the first the first step act. So like what is the first step act? And then also, like what do you think needs to change in the criminal justice system to help people either not be sentenced so harshly or to change the way that that inmates are treated when they are behind bars?
0: Well, the First Step Act was was really the first bipartisan bill in 30 years. that was really significant criminal justice reform. Literally, when President Trump heard about my case and he saw me reuniting with my family, there was not sentencing reform in the First Step Act. In his press conference, he said, I want sentencing reform put in that bill because I don't want to be, want there to be another Alice Johnson. I think that that touched him to the point that he said something has to be done. And what they also did was change compassionate release, where you didn't have to be on your deathbed to get compassionate release. There were provisions in there that uh, that would allow a person to also be granted compassionate release without them being on their deathbed. There were People were rewarded more for having taken things, programs to prepare themselves for reentry. It was geared a lot toward rehabilitation also. And to date, because of the First Step Act, over 20,000 people have come home early from prison and who should have come home early. But honestly, Doug, the First Step Act was just what it's called, the first step. There are some other steps that need to be taken. The people that in the federal in the federal system justice system there is no parole, unlike the states. And I often wonder what in the world is the difference between a federal and a state prisoner. What is the difference? Why there is no parole in the federal system, and no matter how well you do, no matter how much you've redeemed yourself for many, way too many people. Unless they receive a clemency, a commutation the way that I did, there's no hope for them, even though they have done the right thing and rehabilitated. There needs to be stronger reentry programs in place for those returning citizens because allowing someone to gain their freedom and not giving them everything that they need to be successful. There are some some states that are doing incredible things, but we've got to do better. But parole definitely needs to come back so that a person can have a second look at them as an individual and not just the crime that they committed. But who is that person? If they're no longer a safety risk and they have spent this, I mean, they've already spent time in prison. What? good to keep them to remain incarcerated. If retribution has already been satisfied, I don't think it took a life sentence for me to learn my lesson. It didn't take 10 years for me to learn my lesson for sure. That would have been extreme, but a life plus 25 year sentence without the possibility of parole for an individual who had never been in trouble before, even if everything they said about me was true, did that, that still deserve a life plus 25 year sentence for a nonviolent crime where there was no weapons, no physical, no nothing? I know drugs are wrong. I know that they're wrong, but what is happening to people with these drug crimes, that's also wrong. Many people who are in prison for drug crimes are addicts. They were involved in their activities Because they were trying to support their habit, not because they were these big things. but in every drug case, there has to be a kingpin. So you can have an addict that is labeled a kingpin that may have been very little drug, but you label them a kingpin. So, so many things, not just for that, but the whole system. Some things are so broken that you've almost got to tear it down and rebuild it. But I, I am... Encouraged by some of the changes that I'm that I've seen take place, you know, in this field, but there is still so much
1: work to be done. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you with everything you just said, and that and I love how you said, you know, I'm not saying the drugs aren't bad. It's just like it does the sentence for some of these drug crimes as it justified, and also looking at the amount of people in there that that are addicts and that are really just struggling with their mental health and struggling to get well and just got caught up in hard times or in survival mode like you were in and it's like is it really right for them to be behind bars for such for such a long period of time and not only behind bars but sometimes in these prisons where there isn't any like formal rehabilitation process to help people get better like you, you saw it after and you chased after like what you wanted you went and did research on the laws you fought for justice reform you you taught yourself certain things you you mentored other people but there's a lot of people that that maybe they they wouldn't know how to do that and i think it's important for to change the structure within the prison system as well that if you're going to sentence somebody away to do some time to think about the choices that they made right that you have some level of repair and healing that comes during that yeah. sentence. So they come out better than when they went in. And And so the last thing I want to get into with you is something that I think everybody is going to relate to, and that's forgiveness. And you've gone through a lot between your childhood, between your marriage, between losing your youngest son. I know one of your other sons was incarcerated. You know, everything that happened during your time while you were incarcerated with, you know, loved ones dying that you couldn't grieve with and, and everything else that came along with that. What's your journey with forgiveness been like? Like how, what things have you done to not only forgive the other people in your life that have wronged you but also yourself and the reason I ask is I know this was a big stepping stone in your grieving process through your journey.
0: Yes, you know when whenever you have separation, death is a form of separation because you you're separated even though I wasn't dead I was still separated from my family. And so there was grieving involved. I'd lost my life. I'm still alive, but I've lost life as I knew it. And it was like with a tragedy that's taken place and someone's life has totally changed. Maybe they uh, can't walk again or maybe something they've lost loved one. This was still, and it's grief that, that sets in but I had to come to grips with some things. It was burning me inside. It was eating me up inside. I couldn't believe some of the things that people had said that they knew they were lying about, but they said it to save themselves. I had to release that because they they were gone on. I was mad. I was very angry with the prosecutor, with the whole system that how could this happen to me? I had to, for myself, to. It wasn't for the other people. I wasn't doing them any favor because I'm forgiving them. I had to release myself because unforgiveness, I call it even in my book, it's like a rottenness of the soul. You're being eaten alive with unforgiveness and the people are not, they've gone on with their lives or you can't change the situation. And it didn't happen overnight. It's not a magical process. Forgiveness does not mean that you have a memory relapse. It's literally a memory release. I choose to release that. I choose to release that person so they're no longer taking up my life. Because your life becomes centered and becomes focused and you're angry. And it leads to sickness also. It literally leads to sickness bodily, that unforgiveness. That eats you up. Mm. So, whether I felt it or not, what I did was I I started praying for them. I'm not trying to make myself be some type of saint or martyr, because literally this was for me. This was not for them. I'd write their names down, even if I didn't want to say it. I'd write their names down. And when I'm praying, I just start praying for them and praying for their families, praying for their peace, praying for everyone. And gradually, gradually, that pressure just released itself off of me. When I could walk in forgiveness and not unforgiveness, that freed me. Even though I was in prison, I was free because I didn't have that weight on me anymore. And that freed me up to live life. And that was something that I talked to women. I mentored women in constantly, let it go. Let it go because you can't change it, but you can free yourself and you can find peace. And I also had to forgive myself because I had disappointed my family. I had left my children and I had to forgive myself for things that happened, even with my son that ended up on this path and he he became an addict. And, you know, before he went to prison, there was one who was driving the scooter where his little brother was killed. He it led he had childhood trauma that went untreated mm. and he had to go on his path of wholeness in life, too. So I had to forgive myself because forgiving others, you've got to forgive yourself and say, I can't change what I did, but I can do everything that I can to be a different person and and recognize my mistakes, learn from them, and maybe along the way help someone else.
1: Amen to that, Alice. And I think that's a great place for us to to stop our combo. And your story is amazing. It's this ultimate story of redemption, this ultimate story of hope, this ultimate story of perseverance, of faith of never giving up and then also the importance of being of service and how that helped you maintain this, this sense of positivity during these times of darkness and then get out and help so many other people, which you're doing now. So there's going to be people I'm sure that want to connect with you. They're going to want to learn more about your foundation or or follow you on social media. So if people want to do that, where can people learn more about you?
0: Well, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Alice Marie Free. You can remember this well because the chant used to be Free Alice Marie. Well, now Alice Marie is free. So it's Alice Marie Free on Facebook, Alice Marie Johnson or Alice Marie Free. My organization, Taking Action for Good, the acronyms are tagged, T-A-G. So they can go to takingactionforgood.org and keep up with the amazing work that we continue to do and going from state to state to make a difference and also working within our federal system to make a difference in the lives of prisoners and their families and
1: communities. Wow. Well, like I said a couple of times, I love how you're using your story to help other people and all the, the service work that you're doing and you're an amazing human being and kudos to you for making it out on the other side, Alice. And for those listening, I encourage you not only to connect with Alice and her organization, but to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that she said about her childhood and how different it was compared to the times we live in now. Maybe it was something she said on forgiveness. Maybe it was something that she said on the importance of maintaining faith and hope. Maybe it was something she said about her story of being granted clemency or perhaps something she said about criminal justice reform, whatever it was. Make sure you tag her, tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.